0: It's, uh, it's a great pre- pleasure to, uh, to be able to begin a series on Mark. Um, if nothing else, having just listened to the whole of Mark chapter 1, thank you for our readers. Uh, it's a fast-paced book, isn't it? He's just rolling on. He, he can't wait to tell you the story, and, and I can't wait to get into it with you. Uh, let's pray and ask that God would help us this morning. Father, we thank you for this word that you've preserved. We thank you for the way it points us to Jesus, and pray today that we might see him more clearly. Help us, we ask, by your Holy Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's just get some of the things that we need to know underway and under control before we dive into the text that we've just heard. Uh, it's, it's really important as we look at a book, and we're going to look at it for the next... uh, 10 weeks, I think, something like that. We're going to work through Mark really carefully and systematically that we lay a foundation so you know what's going on here. Uh, I I I would love you to read with me um, as we we go through it. So if you can keep your Bibles open, that'd be great. And actually, in the weeks in between, I'll let you know what I'm going to be preaching in the week ahead, and you can have a read and we'll be able to arrive at this time well prepared. Uh, So at some level, you might think that this question is silly, Who wrote Mark? What do you think the answer is? Okay, that's good. Uh, What you should know is that originally, the book that we have today was written without the title Mark, as in it wasn't on a bookshelf or on a a website on Amazon, something like that, under the name Mark. It wasn't like that at all. It was an account of Jesus' life, and it was passed around by the early church because they valued it but it wasn't called Mark straight away and immediately. So then the question becomes, okay, so who wrote Mark? Well, there's a little bit of an answer to that, that uh, we piece together. It's worth saying that this is our best guess rather than 100% take it to the bank, okay? Uh, And so what I want you to know today is that it's more than likely, I think, very probable, that a guy called John Mark wrote Mark, and you think, Who's John Mark? Uh, Well, I'd like to tell you a little bit about uh, who John Mark is and how he came to uh, play a part in that. Uh, In Acts chapter 12, uh, we see a little bit uh, here uh, about Peter having been released from prison, and then he goes, uh, (laughs) when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Uh, Peter, after his released from jail, goes to a house in Jerusalem of a person called Mary who has a son called John Mark. Now, ordinarily, it wouldn't matter who their son's name was because you're just interested in the mother, but it's important. He's an important person, and we see him immediately mentioned here. He's the son of someone who lives in Jerusalem called Mary. It probably means that he was young during the life of Jesus, but rose to prominence later. Okay? Second piece of information, there are lots of them, but here's the second bit of information. A little bit uh, further down in Acts 12, we see this. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned uh, from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. So Paul and Barnabas went on a mission trip to take the good news of Jesus out into the world after Jesus had died and rose again. They took along a young bloke called John, also called Mark. Same guy. Okay. So now we've got someone who lived in Jerusalem, who was connected to the early church, who went on missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. Pretty good resume so far. Yep. Here's the third piece of the puzzle. Uh, In 1 Peter, a letter written by the Apostle Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, he says this, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Now, Paul calls Timothy his son. As far as we know, Paul wasn't married and he didn't have any children. He calls him his son because he led him to the Lord, because of their close discipleship relationship. Mark here is a disciple, a follower, a a, a close relation to Peter, the great apostle Peter. We understand, piecing all these bits and pieces together, that Peter was the one who had been walking with Jesus, that he passed on his recollections and stories of Jesus' life through John Mark, who wrote the account down. So we have with us in the Gospel of Mark an account of Jesus' life recollected by Peter and recorded by a guy called John Mark. How's that sound so far? Easy, hey? Don't be worn out. I think that's a helpful place to start. And it probably gives us the reason why the church so readily went, we love this account, because it was connected to the head of the early church, Peter. Does that make sense? All right. Next question. Who is it written to? And a related question, which will naturally follow, when was it written? The answers to that are all sorts of speculation, again, but I think we can narrow it down really helpfully, so let's do that. I think the most obvious place to believe it was written to, and the people it was written to, are people in Rome. The reason for this is, this is where Peter ended up. So he went from Jerusalem to the head of the empire to Rome, and there he led the early church. Okay? Because he was there, and he was executed there, we would think that if John Mark wrote, listening to Peter wrote the gospel, he would have done so in Rome with Peter. Does that make sense? So that's where where he probably was. What was the date for that writing? Well, Peter was executed by Nero. Have you heard of Nero? Crazy Roman emperor. So in around 64 AD, since it would have been hard for Peter to be recollecting what Jesus had said after his death, we go for a time before 64 AD. Does that make sense? But it's in the context of rising persecution in Rome. So the church there is under increasing pressure and it becomes important to record this recollection of Jesus' life. Somewhere around the, the early 60s is our best guess for when Mark was recorded. Make sense? Let's keep going. So what's it all about? What's the book all about? Well, the obvious answer, the Sunday school answer is what? It's all about bit more conviction. What's it all about? Okay, it's all about Jesus. That's absolutely right. Mark, though, has some very particular focus. And we're going we're gonna to look at these things over the course of our working through Mark. First thing is, it's about the good news. It's called the gospel, the good news. Mark is passionately concerned to gather together good news about what? Well, the next focus he has is that Jesus is the Christ. And you kind of go, I just thought that was his second name, Jesus Christ. It's not his second name. It's actually a statement of his authority. It's a statement that he is the chosen king, the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah would be another way of saying Jesus' name. And so Mark wants to say, this person that you'll read of here was and is the Christ. We're going to get into that some more. So the gospel equals good news, Jesus equals the Christ, and more than that, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. He is the unique Son of God in flesh, walking amongst us. Mark is passionately concerned that we get these three points. Along the way, he writes so that the Gentiles know that they're included. Again, we need to do a quick little bit of work here. Um, The Jews divided the world up into us and them. We, We do this stuff all the time, don't we? Yep, us and them. So for the Jews, we are the promised people, we're the Jews, and everyone else is called the Gentiles, okay? Which means that almost everyone here is in the category of the Gentiles. You're Gentiles, okay? It's not a special word about who you are and whatever. It's a category. You're in the everybody else group. Does that make sense? And Mark is writing an account of Jesus' life to people who are in the everyone else group and saying, you're included. Jesus loves you. You're important. And that makes sense because he's writing to a church in Rome, which would have had some Jews and certainly a good number of Gentiles. Does that make sense? So he's writing to say, you're included. Another purpose behind why he's writing is to encourage them in suffering, which is not that you go out and look to have more suffering, but to explain how to persevere as the temperature goes up. Whether he writes in the midst of Nero killing the Christians, I don't know, it's possible to tell. But he points the church forward and he says, you will know how to suffer well. And the reason for that is his third focus here. He's writing to explain the cross. If you get the cross in connection to Jesus, you'll understand the place of suffering. There are his passions as he writes. Well, where does it all take place? One of the great things about the Bible that we have in front of us is that it's based in historical reality. It's grounded in real geography. It happened in space and time. And so what I want you to know is this took place here in Israel and more than just in Israel a good deal of it took place up north in a place called Galilee and you'll certainly have heard of that and we're going to spend a good deal of time in the in the the gospel wandering around the top of Galilee but it moves the focus moves and shifts to Jerusalem we end up in the capital city of Israel the place where God's temple is the heart of the people of God Everything naturally, all roads naturally lead to Jerusalem. The the, the account of Jesus' life is devoted up. The first eight chapters, more or less, happen up north in Galilee. We have some transitional travel chapters where we move from up the north to down the south. And then we spend a massive chunk of time from chapter 11 to chapter 16 with the focus firmly on Jerusalem. In fact, some people have argued that this this account of Jesus' life is not a biography. Because if we write a biography, we go, where were you born? We say, who were your parents? We say, what was your education like? And then we gradually work up into your great achievements and then to your death. Here's what Mark does. He jumps straight into the middle of the story and arguably the only things he says are to prepare us for the last third of the book, which is about the last week or so of Jesus' life and his death. Now, if you were to say a third of the account of someone's life was about the last week and their death, that would seem odd, wouldn't it? An odd waiting to have. But for Mark, the cross is so important that over a third is pointed towards Jesus' death and the cross. So that's where it happened. How does it unfold? A brief overview of the structure. We are going to get into the text in front of us, but I want you to have this in in place so that as we work through this series, you'll know. Well, it starts off with an introduction where, amazingly, Mark doesn't keep everything quiet. Some people like to have the tension build, you know? So you find the answer to the mystery at the end and only at the end, and you sit there with a, a Sherlock Holmes and you go, got it, you know? Finally, I figured out what was going on. Mark is... He's a crazy storyteller. What he does is he puts everything in front of us. He says, the gospel is the good news. It's about Jesus, the Christ, who is the Son of God. Bang. And you're like, oh, okay, that took a verse. Well, what are we going to do for the rest of this book? You know? And so what he does is he puts it front and center. And then the challenge for us is to join Mark and the people he tells us about on a journey. How will they come across these three ideas. So in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus boldly proclaims the good news has come. In chapter 8, we see Peter say Jesus is the Christ. He's the first person to say it, all the way in chapter 8. And then it's not until chapter 15 that a Roman centurion finally says, This man is the son of God. Drop the mic, walk off the stage. It's like that. Everything up front, and then we look at the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and then we conclude to see what it means to put those three great statements together. Does this make sense? Fantastic. The cross is where we're heading. Well, let's get started. If uh, you can open up your Bibles, we're in uh, Mark chapter 1, and uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3, page 1001. Again, just, just remember, we've just come from Christmas, haven't we? How do, how do Matthew and, uh, and Luke start their accounts of Jesus' life? You know, they account it with a genealogy, and then an angel appearing, and talking to Mary and Joseph, and then a baby being born, and then you know mangers and magi and do you you know what I mean have a listen to how Mark starts his gospel you ready the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah the son of God as it's written in the prophet Isaiah I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him how was the careful introduction it's pretty abrupt isn't it it's pretty remarkable really But what I want us to see is not only the weight of him going, bam, here's my central points, but more than that, how he immediately says, today is related to yesterday. Can you see what he says? This is exactly what happened as it was written in Isaiah the prophet. He's pointing us backwards to say, today isn't unexpected. In fact, it's been longed for. So let's let's have a look. I've got at the top here... Uh, in very small uh, things up here. This is my timeline of the Old Testament. Starts with creation, works all the way through the exodus from e- uh, Egypt, the Ten Commandments, uh, the de- uh, wandering in the desert, taking the promised land, kings, exile, and return from exile. That's the whole of the Old Testament. What I want to show you is how does Mark's gospel plug in to the expectations that were in the Old Testament? So he's quoted Isaiah 40 and verse 3. He said, In Isaiah 40 verse 3, it's saying, comfort, comfort my people. I'm going to send someone who will prepare the way for you. And so the people of God had lost the promised land. That's the broken down building. They'd come back from Babylon and Assyria, come back into Israel, but they were longing for God's comfort. And Isaiah wrote in the Old Testament to say, a day will come when someone will say, prepare the way for the Lord because he will come to his broken people. And so there'd been a longing for the people of God. In the Old Testament, King David is the great king. He's the anointed one, the Messiah in the Old Testament. And he'd been promised, one day one of your descendants will rule on your throne forever. And so ever since that day, the people of Israel have been looking and wondering, where is the king who's descended from David who will reign forever? And they're looking, they're wondering. More than that, we're told there's good news from Isaiah, that Jesus is the Christ, and more than that, that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, where do we see the Son of God in the Old Testament? Well, John's gospel starts with, in the beginning is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The one who is the Son of God has been in this story from day one at creation, And so the Old Testament sets us up to know there's a good news coming, there's a king coming, and one day this one who made creation with the Father will be present. So we've been expecting him, longing for him, and that's how Mark starts. Well, he gets underway in a very punchy way, and he talks about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the one that Isaiah had been looking for. Have a look with me at verses 7 to 8 here. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's there saying, I'm pretty important. People flood out to him. He preaches to them, but his job, totally at odds with what we would do today, is not to draw people to himself. What's his job? He's got a great big sign, and it says, Somebody else. coming. Somebody else is coming. I'm the preparer. I'm rolling out the red carpet for the more important person who's coming. And so that's what he's doing. He's announcing good news. The good news is somebody's coming. The somebody who's coming is Jesus, which is uh, good to know, isn't it? Uh, If you have a look at verse 9, it says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verse 10... Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Who is Jesus? According to the voice from heaven, Jesus is who? The Son of God. This one who had been waiting for isn't just another preacher. John isn't just going, hey, I'm the warm-up act for the second act. This guy's going to do some preaching. It's going to be pretty good, a little bit better than me. No, no, no. The one who's coming up out of the water is affirmed by a voice from heaven to be the Son of God. How much attention should we pay at this point, do you think? The God of the universe has turned up. He's here, and he's just said to his son, I love you, with you I am well pleased. Now, for all of us who want to know, what was Jesus' childhood like, right? Where did he go to school? How did he learn to write? Was he good at the hammer and chisel like his dad? All of that's irrelevant. What's the verdict from the Father about how Jesus has lived his life? With you, I am... Now, we may have all sorts of questions. We may want to know far more than the Bible tells us, but here's the only thing that matters to the Father. You have lived in a way that is wholly pleasing to me. It's a pretty good start, isn't it? Here's, here's the nativity scene from, uh, from Mark's gospel. You're my son. Good on you. Get into it. That, that's it. We're done. So we meet Jesus, who's the good news, who is the Son of God. Have a look what happens to the Son of God. You would think, okay, so the Son of God has come. All things will now be made right. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and Jesus will be lifted up and the king of the world. That's what you could expect, couldn't you? God is just, he's here. The son of God has come. No problems whatsoever. That's what you might expect. But have a look what happens. Verse 12, immediately next. It says this, At once the spirit sent him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. So the Son of God turns up, and what happens next? What happens next is actually quite striking. The thing that happens next is spiritual opposition. Here comes Jesus, and straight away, immediately, Satan tempts him. This Son of God on earth isn't going to get away scot-free The spiritual enemy is going to try and pull him down from day one. And so we see here that he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but he also had some spiritual help, didn't he? Apparently angels attended him. So there's going to be a battle. We're going to see spiritual opposition against the Son of God who's come to bring the good news. That's part of the dynamic of this gospel that we're looking at here. Well, how does the action unfold? Have a look with me at verse 14. Incidentally, Mark isn't very interested in filling in all the little bits that we want. He is just on the rampage. And so we've just seen Jesus in the wilderness attended by angels. I'm like, oh, actually, can we just press pause there? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What did that look like? What did that sound like? I want to know some more. Mark's like, next. After John was put in prison, hang on, why did John turn up in prison? Who put him in prison? Do you see? Anyway, he's not interested. Next. Okay, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is now ready. Following his baptism, following the descent of the Holy Spirit and the voice from heaven, Jesus says, now is my time. The kingdom of God has come. So what do we see Jesus saying? He goes about saying the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Israel, good news has come. Your job is to turn away from sin and hear the good news. The problem is the good news has come. It's come with a kingdom. We've got a kingdom. What do we need to have a kingdom? Does anyone know what you need to have a kingdom? Yes, right. I heard some people mumbling very quietly and humbly. A king. That's right. So if you're going to have a king, what is Jesus actually saying if the kingdom of God has come? He's actually saying, I'm the Christ. That's what he's saying. If the kingdom of God has come, nothing changed in the leadership of Israel, did it? God didn't beam down another king somewhere else. So if the kingdom of God has come, that's because the king has come, the Messiah, the Christ has come. So Jesus is saying, believe the good news. And just on the side, did you know that the Christ has come as well? When the people hear that, I assume they immediately think, good gracious me, the time of fulfillment of the promise to David has come. We're a nation under foreign rule. You know the Romans? They were ruling Israel at this time. There were, fo- there were foreign troops stationed all over Israel. When Jesus says the kingdom of God has come, I tell you what, I think people got a little bit antsy brilliant are we on for a revolution yeah if the promised king has come what would happen next that's a bit of a problem for jesus as we'll see so he announces that the kingdom has come and then what does he do next well according to mark he goes for a walk by the sea as jesus walked beside the sea of galilee can you see again he's just rolling on isn't he all oh, right done that Uh, Next, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. If I was casting a net into the lake, it would be because I'm throwing a net away. They were casting a net into the net, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. All of us just think this is just completely normal, because we're in Bible world in our heads. Men at work, with a net in the water, have a bloke walk by and say, come follow me and I'll tell you how to fish for people. And what do they do? Yeah, mate, if you can come back after uh, Smoko, uh, that'd be good. And uh, it doesn't turn out that way. Here's what he says. It says, at once they left their nets and followed him. How compelling must it have been to meet the living Son of God? I am literally walking away from my livelihood because you, I cannot let go. Isn't that brilliant? There's something so compelling about meeting Jesus in person that they couldn't resist, yes, I will come follow you. No, I've got no idea what catching people means. I'm sure they haven't got a clue. Jesus intends you'll catch people by telling people that I'm the Christ. You'll draw them in to follow on. But, But we'll find that out later. If we flick on a little, because we can't work through it all at the same pace, he picks up some more disciples and then goes to Capernaum uh, when he ends up in a synagogue. synagogues a Jewish teaching place. It looked almost exactly the same as this, I'm sure. Uh, it was a building where they met on a Saturday to talk about the Scriptures. And Jesus is there. It's their church day. People are there. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want? I won't try and do a voice, will I? But you get it. It would have been disruptive. It would have been awkward. It would have been one of those things where someone's shushing him. Do you know what I'm talking about? We would have asked him to go to the parents' room. (laughs) I kind of feel like calling this out really loudly, so we all feel as awkward as we should. But he calls out, and he says, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, we should be freaked out a little at this point, shouldn't we? Like, at least a little. Uh, What's happening is Jesus is preaching in a way that says something unusual is happening. There's a signpost up that says the people are going, His teaching's different. There's something odd about that. So, there's a signpost in His teaching. But then this next thing happens spiritual opposition breaks out, as we should expect. And a a demon-possessed man, a man with an impure spirit. Incidentally, if you don't believe in this, that's okay, because God and the Bible do. I'm not going to try and persuade you about this. This is an account of the reality of how things unfolded with Jesus' time on earth. If you haven't personally seen a demon or had contact with it, firstly, be thankful Secondly, it doesn't mean that such spiritual beings don't exist. The gauge for our, our understanding of reality doesn't just go through what we see and touch and feel. Because otherwise, how do you believe that there was anyone on the moon? Yes, that's our, they're our questions, aren't they? We have all these questions. My, my thing would be, the Bible doesn't make any apology for this. It just says there was a demon-possessed man there. I'm taking it as read that this is the case. What happens, though, is that this evil spirit says what? Jesus, you're the son of God. Does anyone else at this stage know this? No one knows this. And here we have an evil spirit speaking on behalf of all evil spirits, it seems. Have you come to destroy us? Did you notice this? And then it says, I know who you are. In other words, I'm speaking on behalf of all the scared spiritual evil beings at the moment who are saying, what are you doing here? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. At which point, everyone in the synagogue would have gone, what is going on? What does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Have a look with me. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. Can you see the magic spell he uses? There's no magic spell. Jesus' words are incredibly powerful. Quiet, come out. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Immediately obeys. Incredible authority, incredible power. What we notice here, though, is that Jesus is the Son of God is a secret. Demons, don't tell. It's not your job to tell. Be quiet. It's become a secret, locked away. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. You have to be quiet. This is an announcement that evil beings don't get to make. You may know who I am. I do bring awesome, unchallenged spiritual authority into the world, but it is not your job to announce this. You will be quiet. So I think everyone is now asking, so why is it such a secret? Sorry, what's the, isn't it great? I mean, if your demons are going to preach, maybe they should just get on with the job. Maybe that'll help. Clearly something spiritual is happening. Maybe people pay more attention if demons. So why is it such a secret? Well, let's think about this little key, locking away the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to think with me, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to re-educate Israel. If he stood up on day one and said, I am the Son of God, the Christ, and I'm the bearer of the good news, everyone would have gone, right, revolution, let's overthrow the Romans. He wants to slow it down to re-educate them. It's a bit like trying to say to people, "Um, I want you to think of an electric car when this is the electric car that you have in mind. Okay? The people are thinking Thomas Parker, 1884, apparently the first electric car. That's a little bit of trivia for today. They're thinking, when you say electric car, I'm thinking 1884. They certainly could not think of an electric car that would end up on the moon. It would have been inconceivable for them that there could be an electric car on the moon, let alone a uh, Tesla in 2015 that has a faster not to 100 speed in a V8 supercar. So Jesus is saying, I'm trying to talk to you about a reality at the moment, how the idea of me being the son of God and the Christ works, but you cannot understand it at the moment. You need to have some education. When I say, if I was to say I'm the Christ, you would say, "You're King David. Revolution." Jesus says, "I want to just slow it all down. I'm going to say that I'm the Messiah" I'm going to say that I'm the Son of God, but I need you to understand the way I'm going to show you is by dying on the cross. No one could possibly understand. The crowning pivotal moment of Jesus' life on earth is his death. That is how he's crowned the Son of God, the Messiah. That is the coming of the good news, and no one would get it. Until they slowed down. So today, I want to ask you this question. As we look ahead to the series, do we have the right picture of Jesus? Have we just cobbled together an understanding of Jesus from our childhood and kind of gone, I think Jesus looks a bit like that? I want to encourage you over the next 10 weeks, we're going to see the real Jesus. We're going to meet him in the words that the Holy Spirit enabled to be recorded for us. Meet the real Jesus. Get your picture of him right. Will we listen as he re-educates us? Will we listen as he changes our expectation, as he points us towards what it means to be the Son of God, the Christ, and to truly get the good news? Will you and I be people who will be re-educated as we open ourselves to Jesus? I'm going to pray for us that that would be the case. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you did not leave us on our own, lost and dark. You sent your Son into the world to save us, to bring the gospel, the good news, to be the Christ, the Messiah, to be the holy, unique Son of God. Father, help us to see him rightly, to follow him dearly, to proclaim him clearly. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.